Go ahead and put the first slide up, if you would, please. We're trying new technology. I'm going to try and control my slides from up here. Hopefully it works. If it doesn't, Craig's back there to, protect, to, to rescue me in the event of technology failing us. On the slide in front of you, most of the morning has been this heart. And the words next to it were, after God's own heart. What does that make you think of? Hmm? David. David. Why? Because that's what was said of him. That's exactly, that is, that is what he is known as. He is, David is one of the um, heroes of the faith. David is one of the people that when you think of people who are, are godly and people who are, who are right before the Lord and who are doing things the best that they can, David is the one that rises to the top. He's the cream on top of everything. He is, he's one of the best. Um, and as Elsie said, he's known as that in the, aha, let's hold on. Let's see if it'll do it. You can do it. Come on machine. Okay. Bring up the next slide because it's not wanting to do it. David was known as the man after God's own heart. And if you look in, um, let me see if I can do it this way. You look in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Craig, just go ahead and bring the slide up. It's not going to do it for me. Uh, the, the words here in verse 14 are, but now your kingdom shall not continue. This is the prophet Samuel speaking by the Lord to King Saul. After King Saul has disobeyed once again. And it says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And the next one is, is Acts chapter 13, verse 22. When Stephen is giving his testimony, uh, I, I believe it's Stephen. No, no, not Stephen. I'm sorry. This is Peter. Peter is speaking, or maybe it's Paul. I've, I've lost track in my mind at this point, sorry. God raised up David to be the king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And that gives us a little bit of a clue to what it means to be a person after God's own heart. Someone who does all of God's will. Go ahead and bring up the next slide. Uh, we're going to get to this in just a second. I want to I focus for just a second. What does it mean to be after God's own heart? It's, it's not having a heart for God. You, you, do, do you hear the difference? When God is saying, I am seeking out someone who is after my own heart. It's not someone who really is in love with God or has a heart for God. God is looking for someone who has... My heart, if you will. He's, I, 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 we talked about it in Sunday school. The youth talked about it in Sunday school this morning about the idea of kindred spirits. And if you've ever read anything from Anne of Avonlea uh, or seen any of the movies about Anne of Avonlea, there's this, this term kindred spirit. 
And it's this sense of a close bond, a, a, a knitting of the hearts together. If you look at this, the story of David and, Saul, and Jonathan, the son of King Saul, it says that they literally loved each other as they loved their own soul. And this idea of kindred spirit is what I see and understand as someone who is after God's own heart. It's I love God in such a way that that it's it's almost as if God and I are, are and I don't want to say God and I are one, but you know what I'm trying to say. It's it's almost as if God and I are one in our thinking and our way of looking at things. It's just my heart is so knitted with God's so that God literally says he's after my own heart. There's this closeness, this, this, this spiritual formation that took place. And, and, and if you look at David's life, um, when, he, when he stood before Goliath, or, or when he was getting ready to stand before Goliath, they were saying, you need to have the armor of the king. And he says, no, no, just, have the, my, just my sling. Why? How can you just go before him? He said, God has already rescued me from the mouth of the bear. He's rescued me from the mouth of the lion. I can just go with a sling. This is how God has rescued me in the past. And I trust him. He'll do it. And indeed, that's exactly what God did. So we see this man of faith. We see this man who has proven over and over again. He has grown up from his youth, trusting God, depending on God, talking to God. If you look at the book of Psalms, more than half of the book of Psalms are songs that David wrote in praise and honor to God. David had an incredible, incredible relationship with God. His heart was so tender toward the things of God that even when Saul started chasing after him, and we talked about this again, if you, if you don't remember, it was years that David was on the run from Saul, upwards of 13 or so years, possibly, that David was on the run from Saul. And at one point, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 24, at one point, David is hidden in a cave with all of his people and Saul just happens to come into that cave to go to the bathroom. And so they're all in the back part of the cave and King Saul comes in to relieve himself, the Bible says, and the guys are whispering to David, God has brought him into your hand. All you have to do is reach out and kill him and you will no longer have to be on the run. And David said, forbid it that I would ever think about raising up a hand against the Lord's anointed. It's God's business when and if I'm ever going to be king. Now, David had already been anointed by prophet Samuel as king. It was done privately. So David already knew that God had declared that he would be the king after Saul. But David was not going to do anything to circumvent what God was doing. Even to the point of when God, when, when the circumstance presented itself, David could have quite easily killed Saul and, and had done with it, but he wouldn't do it. But what he did do was he reached out and he was so close to Saul, he grabbed a hold of his cloak and he took his knife or sword and he cut a portion of the cloak and held it in his hand. So that when Saul was done going to the bathroom, he leaves the cave and he goes back down to join the army. And David then comes out to the mouth of the cave and he calls out to King Saul. And Saul turns around and he says, You're my master, I am not trying to harm you in any way. Look, I have a part of your clothes right here in my hand that I cut off. And Saul looks around and realizes that indeed there's a piece of his clothing cut off. 
And David said, this should be proof to you that I do not want to harm you. But look at what it says in verse 5 of chapter 24. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He had such a heart after God, such a tender heart of wanting to do what is right and honorable and pure and holy and righteous that even the act of cutting off a part of the king's robe bothered him. It literally says his heart struck him. He had pain in his heart because of that action. He didn't do anything wrong necessarily, but something in him said, I feel really badly for what I did. Go ahead, next slide, please. Next slide. But then we come to a little bit later. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through the whole story. You, there are battles. There are things that happen in John and David's life. David is established as the king for a few years. He's only the king of Judah. And then finally, he's the king of the entire nation. And then finally, it says that in the springtime of the year, when kings normally go to war. First, I mean, second Samuel chapter 11. When kings normally go to war, the army went out, but... King David stayed back in Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, twiddling his thumbs, wanting to hear what's going on with the army and the battles, David happens to be out on the roof of his palace and he looks down across the city and he just happens to see a woman, it says, is taking a bath because she's just finished her monthly cycle and she's cleansing her body. And there was nothing sinful in him accidentally spying a woman who was bathing. He could have gone, oh, oh, man, and gone back into his palace. But what does he say next? He says to one of his servants, find out for me who that woman who lives in that house is. And they come back and they say, well, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite who's out with the army. Oh, her husband's not at home. Tell her to come over here to the palace. Bring her to me. And then he ends up having sexual relationship with her. And she ends up being pregnant. And when he finds out that that she's pregnant... And there's an opportunity, I mean, there's going to be this, this public scandal because there's no hiding it. One would think that this man after God's own heart would be struck in his heart because of the actions that he has done. This is his normal path. I mean, I forbid it that I would even raise a hand against the Lord's anointed, and I feel badly that I even just cut off a part of his clothing. I'm struck in my heart. But at this point in his walk, his response, go ahead and bring up the slide. In verse 6 of chapter 11 He didn't experience a striking of his heart. What did he experience? Bring up the slide. David sent word to Joab, the commander of the army, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. 
The very first response of this tender-hearted man who is the heart after, own, after God's own heart, his first response is, I've got to come up with a plan to keep myself from getting in trouble. And we know the story, if you've read it. Uriah comes, reports to David. David gets a report from, the arm, uh, from what's going on in the front. And then he says, go home to your wife and enjoy yourself. And Uriah's like, I'm not going to do that. All of my buddies are out in battle. I'm not going to go to my house. And so he sleeps outside of the palace. And he refuses to go see his wife. And it's a public thing. So there's no faking it. There's no way to intimate that he went home and slept with his wife. And that's why she's pregnant. So David then calls him back. And he says, why didn't you get in? And he said, I can't go. My, my buddies are all out at war. And I, there's no way I can in good conscience sleep with my family. And, and enjoy the, 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 the fruit of being at home. And so David gets him drunk. And tries to trick him into going to his house. And still Uriah doesn't. So what does David do? He writes a private communique. Seals it with his royal seal. Hands it to Uriah. And says, take this to Joab. And Uriah, the honorable man carries his own death sentence back to the commander. Because when Joab opens up this secret communique, what it says is, Uriah has to die. Put him in the front lines. So then, when the battle is over with, Joab sends a messenger back to the king. How are things going in the battle? Oh, it's pretty bad. We've had some pretty bad casualties. And David gets furious. What do you mean? Joab's supposed to be taking, being a good leader. And the, Joab had already covered himself, but he said, when he gets upset about the fact that we're having problems with casualties, just speak these words. Say, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And when the, the courier says those words to King David, he goes, Joab knows what he's doing. I trust. This is a man after God's own heart. This is a man that we hold in high esteem as a hero of the faith. Just makes me sick to my stomach. Bring up the next slide. In the very next chapter, we get the next scene. David and Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet comes to the king. He says, King, I got a story to tell you. There's this guy who has a lot of stuff. I mean, he's, he's wealthy. He's fabulously wealthy. One of his neighbors next to him is very, very poor. He only has this one little lamb that he is, I mean, one little sheep that he has raised up from the time it was a lamb. He loves this sheep. He literally sleeps with the sheep. He's so in love with the sheep. And it's all he has. And he pours his whole life into this sheep. Well, the neighbor who's rich beyond any description and has all the resources available to him has some people come to visit him from out of town. So what does this guy do, the rich guy? He goes over and he gets the sheep from his poor neighbor. And he slaughters it. He feeds it to his guests. David is livid. David says, the man who did that deserves to die. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man. And instantly David's heart is struck. 
a little bit late. Because now he's called out for his sin. And what a horrible, horrible sin. Do you realize he could be stoned for committing adultery? Do you realize he could be stoned for committing murder? This is all being done in the privacy of the palace. This isn't a public proclamation. This is just the prophet of God coming to David privately to confront him in his sin. And David's words, chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And David said to the, to, and Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. believe I did that. I'm so sorry, God. I, I, I don't ever want to live my life like that again. I want to get my life right. I want to make sure that I am sensitive to you and, and go back to the way I was when I was a youth. I want to have this soft, tender heart towards your things and the people of God. I want to have, I want to be able to live up to the title. I am a man after God's own heart. Thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you, God, for not holding this against me. Thank you for not killing me. Thank you, God. I promise you from this day forward, I will be that man after God's own heart. I will keep myself from any further straying away from what is holy and righteous and pure. Bring up the next slide. Next one. But there are consequences. God said, I've forgiven you of your sin and you're not going to die. But the very next verse, the very words immediately after that are these. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Bring up the next slide. What a horrible, horrible story. Now, if you go on to read, it says that David goes over to the tabernacle and he spends seven days fasting and praying, weeping before God for his son's life. And then ultimately the son dies. And then he comes up out of his mourning and he eats and they're kind of taken aback. His servants and all the people around are taken aback. He said, he said, you've mourned and you wept and you've torn your, you've worn sackcloth for seven days. And now that the child's dead, now you get dressed and you wash and you eat. What's, what's up with that? And David's words were, I thought maybe, maybe. I could humble myself enough before God that my son wouldn't have to die because of my sin. But he's already been taken. And there's nothing I can do to change that. And so now I just have to move on. And it says that he comforted his wife in her grief. And then she conceived again and Solomon was born. And they went on with their lives. And we don't have time this morning to go into all the other junk that happened as a result of his sin. If you want to read it, it's all there. Chapters 12, 13, 14, all of that. But you need to hear something this morning. David, the man after God's own heart, the man who loved God more than anything, who was willing to do anything to be honorable and righteous and holy and pure, reached a point in his life where temptation overwhelmed him. 
And he sinned. And then he sinned. And then he sinned. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until God said, Enough! And God forgave him of his sin. But it's like a stone dropping into a, pot, uh, into a body of water. The ripples that go out negatively impact not just David. His son died. His wife lost her child. He lost standing in the eyes of his general, Joab. Ultimately, Joab abandons him as, as, a, as a, an, an ally and aligns himself with, with his son. His son Absalom takes over the kingdom. David loses his place as a king and is literally cast out and is, is scorned publicly by people. Now, God restores all of that through time, but think about one sin that... A person refuses to confess but then tries to cover up with more sin and more sin and more sin. And ultimately, all of the how many dozens if not hundreds of lives were negatively impacted because of that one person and their refusal to confess and repent of what they did. Now, the thing that just just drives me crazy in this is this is a man who loved and honored God from his youth. This is a man who stood before a giant with nothing but a sling and five stones, trusting that God would rescue him. This is a man who was known as a man after God's own heart, and he fell that far. It gives me pause to think about my own life. What safeguards do I need to have in place to make sure that I don't follow that same path? Because I love God with my heart. I have served the Lord for more than four decades. It is my heart to be a minister of the gospel, to proclaim the truth, to show the love of Christ. James 1.27, to keep myself unpolluted from stains of the world and to love and, 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 and care for the poor and the widows and the orphans. That's what God sees as true religion and that's my heart. But if David could fall that far, I could fall that far. And I'm literally one sin away. Now, I know there are some people who see sin as a missing of the mark, and it means I sin every day and fall in, in thought word indeed. I understand there are those whose theology teaches that. My theology teaches me that I willfully choose to not do what I know I'm supposed to do, or I willfully choose to do what I know I'm not supposed to do. It's a willful transaction as I sit before God. I know what I'm not supposed to do, and I do it anyway. Or I know I am supposed to do something, and I choose not to. And that's the accountable sin that I'm held accountable for. Not human failings, or not missing the mark because I you know, was tired and I I spoke harshly. And these are the things I need to guard against. And I need to set up 
barriers. I mean, I've told people, I've told youth and I've told people that I've mentored for years that if this is the, if this is the edge of the chasm that's around me, then I need to put my fence in 20 feet inside that edge so that there's no chance that I could ever get to the edge and fall off. To me, that's not legalism. That's not setting up rules that I have to live so that I can be holy. That's protecting myself. It's like if, if, I, if I know that I get to the edge of this thing, I'm going to fall to my death, then I don't want to get anywhere near the edge. So I want to say, I'm going to put a fence up way back here so that I know when I'm getting close. The thing, though, that, that I really have to hold on to is, how did David not know that he was getting close. How did he not know? Because sexual sin, because that's what we're talking about with David's case, sexual sin builds. It starts with a small, small violation and then the next one. And then the next one. So maybe David just gave a passing glance to a really good looking girl and lingered a little bit longer than he needed to. And then the next time, he looked a little bit longer. And then the next time, he thought about, wow, that'd be nice if I could get her to be. Now he could have commanded it because he was king. But I think he was letting barriers down and barriers down and moving the fence a little bit closer to the edge each time. Who knows why? Who knows? Carelessness, the titillation of, you know, getting close. Who knows what it was? But somehow, some way, David moved that barrier closer and closer and closer and closer to the precipice until he leaned over and it fell away. And he lost all control and he fell literally almost to his death. Only for the grace of God was he not killed. So what I, what I want us to walk away with, this is a very dark story and you're all sitting here sad and, and looking pensive at me. What I want us to walk away with this is that not that it's dark and hopeless, but that God is giving each one of you, myself included, a warning. Be holy because I am holy. Walk in integrity and honor and righteousness and purity and do everything that you need to do to make sure that you keep your barriers way within so that you don't fall over the precipice, fall over into the the crevasse. If you do, if you sin, there is hope. God will forgive you of your sin. But there's no promise that there won't be consequences for your sin. And if nothing else, if nothing else, think about those who are going to be harmed because of your choice and the pain that they'll have to endure because of what you do. If that's the only barrier that you can put up to keep yourself from getting too close to the edge, then use that. Father, I want to I want to just ask for your 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 wisdom and your discernment and your protection over each one of us. I pray, Father, that literally as we spend time with you this week, 
that you will bring to our minds areas of our lives where we're letting that barrier get closer and closer and closer to the edge. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the wisdom, the discernment, and the strength to move the barrier back. To literally block, a, put up a brick wall if necessary so that we can't get close. Because, God, it is too important that we continue to honor you with all that we are. To love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Father God, I praise you and thank you for this caution that you've given us in the word of God. And I ask that each one of us would be able to hold on to that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.